Welcome to Energetic Radio. I am your host, Dale Sybottom. Join me each week as I bring you amazing guests and interviews from some of the world's best operators. They will teach us how to bring fun, energy, and joy into each and every day. Let's get stuck in. Welcome to episode number 103, where today I catch up with my great mate Ryan Ellis from the PE Umbrella. Now, today's episode was actually a live webinar that Ryan and myself did, and the content was just that awesome that I thought it was unfair not to share it on our podcast platform. So today's chat is very fun, energetic, and upbeat, where Ryan and myself discuss the eight different personalities of play that come from Dr. Stuart Brown's book. Now, these can be crucial for you actually knowing what your type of play is or the play type of those around you. And this will be beneficial in a workplace, in a school setting, if you're coaching and you know your players because everybody plays and learns differently and it's really fascinating to know. So hope you enjoy this. If you love the chat, you can also go to energetic.education forward slash podcast and this is episode number 103 and we have the actual video footage underneath as well. So if you want to watch Ryan and myself present the webinar, the slides and so forth, you can do that or just listen along and figure out what type of play personality you have. Big warm welcome to everybody and really exciting topic today is figuring out your play type and um, the man I'm joined by, the one, the only, Ryan Ellis, how are you looking? I'm very good, thank you, but how are you? I hope everyone's doing well. I'm, uh, I'm sure they will be after this, and I know um, that we talk about this a lot, and we're going to discuss the different play types and where we got them and so forth like that. But um, I first really, and I read the book that we're going to talk about, but I first really, the first ever podcast of yours, mate, that I listened to um, was when you were talking about play, and you really opened my eyes about it, and um, it was something that I was just fascinated with. So I'm really excited to um, dive into this with you today and um, a little bit more of just a, a general discussion sort of webinar as well, which is really exciting. And if, you, if you're listening along or you're watching along or whatever and you have not listened to Ryan's podcast, then you were missing out. I'd get on there. What, uh, what episode are we up to at the moment, mate? Um, we've just gone by 115, so yeah. we're, we're slowly but surely climbing up, roughly once a week getting an episode out. So, yeah, it's, the ball is rolling. We're having fun along the way, educating, and, uh, yeah, it's great. I love it, mate. I love it. So definitely check that out. Uh, podcasting, fantastic. For any time that you're driving or commuting where you can't do anything else, and um, obviously my name is Dale Sidebottom as well, um, and I run a podcast called Energetic Radio, and um, I think – the topics that uh, Ryan and myself always talk about in our podcast, they refer back to play in a in a way, I suppose, nearly every episode I'd say there'd be some reference to it or just because I think um, once you stop playing, and this is pretty rough, Ryan, but you sort of start dying and people that don't play, they're normally miserable, um, they're not getting the most out of life. Whereas you look and always use this analogy that, um, you look at young kids running around at school, they play all day, they don't have a worry in the world, but for some reason, the older we get, you know, life takes over, we get a family, we get kids, we get a mortgage, we get a job, and the last thing we do is play, and um, too often we see people just going through their motions, 
looking at the clock and sort of wasting away. So um, I feel plays massive. And I know that um, you've got a bit of a story with um, your grandma and a bit of, bit of evidence that you sort of spoke to me about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is you know, really powerful stuff. And I shared this in the, in the podcast episode about play. But, you know, my grandmother, you know, it was just under a year ago now. It was 10 months ago. She passed away. She was suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's for probably a best part of 10 years, but it was a slow, slow onset. I knew nothing about this disease. It was horrible to witness, horrible to watch her deteriorate and, and not even be able to recognise her own daughter, my mother, not recognise me. And just seeing the state she she finished in, nobody wanted to you know see it or go through it at all. You know, it was really, really hard, especially knowing how she was when I grew up. It just, you know, just horrible, horrible. Um, and I always thought or presumed it was all linked genetically. And I have no doubts that it is in some way, shape or form linked genetically. But upon learning a bit more about play and the way our brains work and us as humans, you know, I soon discovered that keeping that brain active and playing as a figure of speech was held responsible for sort of the onset of Alzheimer's. If you stop using something that you possess or own to its full potential it does slowly start dying. And it made me reflect on my grandmother's life for almost as long as I knew her and can remember back to being six, seven, eight years old. She lived in a flat in Leeds in England. She would watch the television. She'd maybe make some food for herself, maybe potter up to the shops. She never worked, from what I can remember in my lifetime. She had a bit of a disability with her arm. Um, then she'd go back home, sit in front of the television. So from, she had no real hobby per se. There was nothing that I can hang on to which she did that was active or play. Not board games. She didn't really hang out with Yeah, didn't hang out with friends. Literally just sat in front of a television, which yeah. is great in smallness, but that is all she did. Um, and all I can liken this to is a story from the book play by Stuart Brown. You know, he talks about the sea squirt, the animal who, you know, as in its you know, infancy, travels the ocean, searching for nutrients, latching onto things to try and develop and grow. But into adulthood, this sea squirt will latch onto the, the hull of a boat or a, and it'll just sit there on a rock because all the nutrients in the currents come to it. And over time, the sea squirt sort of digests its own brain and eats it because it doesn't need it anymore. It almost becomes brain dead. It doesn't need to move. It doesn't need to think or travel. It eats its own brain and it just sits there. And that was powerful stuff to me. And it, it just it was as horrible as it sounds, it was a bit like my own grandmother, and she just stopped doing anything of note that would even resemble play. And her brain deteriorated. It, it wasn't needed. She didn't use parts of it for so long. And, and the outcome was, was horrendous to witness. But it was a real learning experience for me, a powerful one at that, and it just opened my eyes massively as to um, how important play can be. Yeah. I think that's, I know it's a very sad story and everything like that, but I think being able to share those sort of things and those experiences and what we're going to talk about today, because um, obviously the book and it's this book here, um, play by Dr. Stuart Brown, it obviously had a huge impact on both of us and look at that uh, one that Ryan's already prepared earlier. Now in the book, there are some other great stories and the one I love, Ryan, is about the rats. I don't know if you remember the rats, but they did a little test on rats and um, basically they stopped half a group of adult rats, like, um, so rats playing and the other, they let the others play anyway. Then they tested them out and they put like a, a fake cat in there and all the rats went and hid 
all right? But what ended up happening was after a while, the, the rats that had been able to play and play all their life slowly crept out and realised it was a fake cat, whereas the rats that were never able to play that were banished from play through this test, they never come out from hiding and they died. So it just shows that curiosity and everything like that through play. I don't, I don't know if you remember that story in the book. Yeah, I mean, not as it's interesting that that's the one that you remember. It's probably amazing how there's so much value in the book. I, that one doesn't stick in my mind as much, but I'm sure there's other things which stood out more to me than you and vice versa. And that's why I keep going back to this book and looking at certain aspects of it because I'll reread it and think, oh, I missed that bit before. What's all that about? But what that did remind me of what you just said is, you know, the fact that it's in our, our nature as animals, as humans, to play. You know, you look at any animals now, like, Lion cubs, I think that was maybe mentioned in the book as well. They're going to naturally play around, goof about. They're going to wrestle. They're going to test boundaries because it's just what animals do to learn about the environment around them, learn about each other, to socialise. It's just in our nature. And if that is stinted, like you said, with the with the rat story there, it is going to prevent learning and it is going to stop us evolving and getting better. And in that case, the rats ultimately died and paid the price because of it. Yeah, they did. And, and as you can see there, there's, we're, we're going to talk about the eight different play personalities. And um, it's been really funny. We've been speaking a little bit over the last week about ours. And um, Ryan, you think you're a pretty big competitor. That's probably your strongest one. Um, yeah, well, hands down, Dale. <laughs> and I, I must admit, I've got a bit of that, but I also think that um, I'm a bit of an explorer and a joker as well. I know when we got on before, I started... <laughs> Started the webinar with my Elmo head on because I like playing jokes. So um, it's it's all right to be a mixture of a couple, isn't it, Ryan? It, it is, and these these are fascinating because there's a lot of research gone into these. And Stu Brown says, you know, you aren't necessarily one or the other. You can be a mixture of these. And if you're looking at these now and you haven't seen them, you might find yourself picking them out, saying, "Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of me," and so does that. And that's because. In different situations in life, certain ones can come to the forefront above others, but you can intertwine between them. There's some which maybe don't relate to you at all. Me personally, as as they all said, you know, the competitor is hands down my dominant one. Anything I do, even if it's a game of Monopoly with my son who's five, I'll play to win. (laughs) Why not? Um, But it's something I do. But another one which is massive for me, which really explains the whole PE always been active is the kinesthete joy from motion always pushing myself trying to do the best i can you know i walked the three peaks in the orchard dales a couple of years ago and physically it was so demanding but i had some strange pleasure from the fact that i was in a little bit of pain and i was pushing myself through and i absolutely loved that the challenge of it and it was partly it was the combination of being competitive to get to the end but just loving being outdoors and pushing myself there are others but i might get into that soon but just have a look at them already and think, well, actually, yeah, that reminds me of, of a little bit of me, of who I am, or perhaps it reminds you of a son or a daughter or a colleague at work. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, and what, what I like looking at it is I can look at certain things and they straight away trigger a happy memory for the ones that sort of resonate with me a lot. Like you just mentioned doing the three peaks and so forth like that. I can look at a lot of these, and particularly um, ones like the Explorer, a lot of the travelling I've done that I've got very fond memories of or other things like that. So I'm sure once we go through each one of these today, Ron, that people will be able to go, yeah, I've got a little bit of that and that's how it relates. So what we recommend and why we encourage to do this is because play every day is essential. And I know 
talk about this heaps, but just 20, 10, 20 minutes of some form of play is so good for your overall happiness, um, your quality of life, get your body moving. And so if you can know your type of personality or what works best for you, that is obviously beneficial, particularly with our busy schedules, everything we've got going on, and just finding time to fit that in. So um, it, what's your recommend dose of play every day, Ryan? How, how long do you think people need to do a day? Well, again, it's hard to say. Everybody's daily routine, if you like, is different. And, and people may say, oh, I don't have time for that. But I think we can all find time in a 24-hour period, of whether yeah. it's playing just alone or whether we can find time. Um, you know, even if it's just 10 minutes, if you can do half an hour, brilliant. I'll give you an example from my teaching past when I was previously in the classroom. And I've only just now linked this story together of how I found play on a daily basis. So I was a class teacher. I am again now. But back in the day, very busy at school, working all the hours. And after school, when the school finished at five past three, a lot of the teachers would generally go start marking their books or they'd look ahead to the, to the day after. And me and one of my colleagues, we went upstairs to the top hall in the school, wheeled out a table tennis table, got the bats out and the net, and we'd spent about 30 minutes playing table tennis. We had a game of table tennis, rallying back and forth. Some teachers would walk through and look at us like we were aliens. Like, we were like what are you doing? How can you do that? Why are you doing it? I said, and I just looked and just said, because we enjoy it. Yeah. We like playing, which is you know, the joy from the, the motion. We like competing. We're both very competitive. We play to win, but we'd have great fun doing it. And that 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes of just playing table tennis, having a few sets or matches, once we'd done, that we sort of burned that out of us, wheeled the table tennis table away, and then I was ready to then crack on with my marking or spend the next 45 minutes to an hour just finishing up at school. But it was a huge release, and I found time just doing it in the middle of my day. It's not to say everybody will, but that was the way I sort of segued it in, and I found it super beneficial because it sort of got me through the day knowing I had that at the end, and we did it pretty much five days a week. It was awesome. I love that, and and mine's pretty similar as well. And I I used to use not not use the students, but I'd use them as like my mates. We would play games within the classroom, and I know um, uh, the other week we did our um, joint game venture together, Ryan, where we did little movers and big movers, and yeah. um, we both presented on games you could use in high school or primary school. So I use those similar games, and I would break up my lessons in the classroom with some sort of fun play movement game, and. Um, if you wanted to check those out, guys, you can go to energetic.education on the blog, Little Movers, Big Movers, and that's what the games are. So I would actually get my play fix while I was working. And um, what a powerful thing. So, yes, my time was very poor, and I know people listening will be the same way. So I was able to incorporate that into my day, and I think that's a really powerful way of going about it. So we're going to we're going to get stuck into these now, Ryan, and um, maybe you can go through and take some notes as you're going and um, I might go with the first one, mate, so the joker. So obviously um, a little bit of what I was saying before, I like to be a little bit of a joker with my Elmo head on, but um, different ways about it. So a joker plays always resolves around with some kind of nonsense. So I always like to muck around a bit of nonsense. Nonsense is the first kind of play we all engage in. All babies talk in nonsense. Parents make infants laugh by making silly sounds, etc. Later, this can raise, uh, be raised into and wanting to make others laugh. So um, I'm sure most people will know a class clown, um, and that was me growing up at school. I would um, 
often to <laughs> not always what the teacher wanted, but my job was to make other people laugh and other people happy. So um, I'm sure everybody deep down, Ryan's probably got a little bit of a joker in it, some more so than others, but deep down, we're all, we've all got a bit of nonsense in us. Oh, they're more, they're, they're more, you must have. You absolutely must have. Just having, you know, a little bit of a sense of humour, a little joke and a little play. It's how you can get through what you might consider when you become adults. Day-to-day monotony of certain things. And, you know, if you can make that social interaction with somebody, it's a great way to break the ice, isn't it? By joking around or just trying to have a bit of a laugh from somebody. You know, if you stood in a line somewhere or you're speaking to somebody, you usually joke about the weather. Over here we do anyway. Oh, it's raining again. Oh, I'm going to get soaked. So you have a bit of a laugh and they'll, you know, they'll nod along and go, oh, yeah. And then you can break the ice that way by having a bit of a laugh about it because you're both on common ground. So everyone's got it in them, without doubt. Yeah. I'm I'm more of a practical joker, so I find pleasure in scaring people or making a joke or um, or even a lot of the time now making a joke about myself to get a laugh. So I reckon everybody is a joker at some form. So that's that's number one, the joke. Now, Ryan, this is a little bit of you, mate, so go for it. Yeah, yeah absolutely, the kinesthetic. So people who like to move who just can't sit still, that is me. My wife doesn't like this fact. I find it hard to sit and watch films. And the, the pure reason is I find it hard to focus for prolonged periods of time without just wanting to bounce about a little bit. I'd probably do well sitting on a yoga ball while watching something, I reckon. Yeah. But I, I'm always at my happiest when moving. I'm at my my ultimate state of flow, you might want to call it. I am in the zone. When I'm moving, doing something, whether it's playing football on a football pitch, yes, I'm being competitive at the time, but I'm moving, I'm in the zone, I'm focused. I am absolutely over it. Nothing else matters to me because that is what I enjoy the best anything else could be going on in the world but when i'm moving engaging in something for somebody else that might be them going on a jog in the morning and just running you know it could be at the gym on the treadmill just anything a walk at the weekend but when you're in it and you're happy that's your your kinesthetic side of your play personality shining through huge huge for me i've already shared the story about you know the three peaks and how that was sort of my drive to, to succeed as well but the the joy, sheer joy of moving was just unbelievable. And just something I want to get across there is this is something I want my my son to to experience. That that joy, he's not found anything he particularly loves yet. He's a kid, he loves moving. He runs around like crazy, like any five-year-old would. But I want him to find that one thing where when he does, nothing else matters because I can't describe that feeling. You might be listening along and agreeing or, or you might not be sure what I'm getting at. But the one thing about the one thing you love doing that's physical and just picture yourself in that moment now of you actually doing it, it's hard to replicate that feeling. I find it hard to even describe it, but I want my son to experience it in something. So that's why I take him to swimming. He does a little football, he does a bit of tennis, he does some multi-sports, because ultimately I want him to find that one thing he loves doing when he's moving so he can go through life experiencing that and doing it all the time. So for me, even if it's not a huge part of your play personality, like the Joker, I think in most of us, there's some cat, you know, spark there of the kinesthete. And like the story of the sea squirt, it may be you haven't always enjoyed physical activity. So as you've grown older, that part of your brain or drive to do it has diminished. But I don't see any reason why we can't get that back. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I've got I've got three, and I try and well, one or two quite a lot. But um, my number one is batting in cricket. So in a competitive game of cricket, I, I love the feeling of batting. It makes me so nervous. But for some reason, I just love it. And um, I don't do it often because I go out right. I'm not very good. But um, that's number one. And then there's skiing. I love downhill skiing. I just find something about it. Um, and obviously, living in Australia... I don't get as much opportunity, but then I live near the beach in Melbourne. So stand-up paddleboarding for me. And so look at just trying to give people some different ideas there. One's a competitive sport. Skiing's a social experience. And paddleboarding is the most relaxed thing you could ever do. So um, I'm sure that everybody has got one thing that they love doing. And the beauty of that is when your body is moving, you're releasing all these good endorphins and it is actually so good for you. So play doesn't mean you have to go out and play competitive sport. Play could mean that you go for a walk down the beach or up a hill or anything like that. So um, the more you've got your body moving, um, everybody needs to find that happy place, I feel, with that sort of one there on. No, yeah, for sure. Now, the Explorer, this is... I was trying to go through before and I feel that this sort of might be my biggest one. And basically that is where you go around the world exploring things um, and I never lose enthusiasm of finding a new place. Um, For example, uh, in December, so in about two months, um, my partner and myself are going to South America for five weeks. And one of the main reasons is I just want to climb the Inca Trail. And one of the things you do there is you can get a day ride up on a train and back. And there was not even a chance in hell that we were going to do that because I think the whole beauty of that is that you hike up it. So I think that's really cool. It's all about exploring. It can be going to physical places. It can be emotional through music and so forth like that. And I know a lot of people get that feeling um, when new music comes out or different songs does different things to people. And um, too often I see people just so caught up in their own world, particularly on public transfer, Ryan, that they could not care less about anything in the world because they're in the moment, they're listening to the music and they're exploring through that. So that is cool as well. That is play. People, that is play yeah. listening to music. Yeah, for sure. I mean, exploring is, I wouldn't say it's one of my prominent ones at all. I, I, I don't get me wrong. I love going to see new places. But then I always, after having seen it for five, ten minutes, I'm the sort of person who thinks, yeah, I'd quite fancy going back to my house together, a cup of tea and just relax now for a bit. Yeah. So I can, I, I, when I've seen it, that's me done. And sometimes I, if it's thinks about, if I think about travelling so far and I think, oh, yeah, well, it's, it's quite far to go, actually. Yeah, I'd rather just, uh, I'm more of a homebody myself. Yeah. You know, if it's easy to get there and do it, that's fine with me. But, you know, children... Our natural explorers, like it says here, they started their life exploring the world around them. My daughter pulls chairs around my living room. She throws crayons on the floor just to see what's going to happen. Then she might tidy them back up again. She sees how the world around her works by physically exploring it. That's how we figure out taste and touch as well. You know, the babies will chew on things and they'll gnaw things and bite things. They're exploring, figuring out how this world around us works. That's why I take it into my teaching in EYFS and Key Stage 1 in schools. A lot of my lessons are theme-based. We are essentially exploring that theme. We are going under the water. We are defending our kingdom as knights. We are going to be animals in the jungle. We are exploring jumping over the trees and swimming under the water. All of this is exploring in the mind and being imaginative. Kids are the best at this, so you can use them for ideas hands down in lessons. But, you know, really powerful, even if it isn't at the forefront for you, it certainly is for children until they find their way and their path. 
And that is a sense of play as well. I think a lot of us can probably sit here and agree that music is something we enjoy listening to. We'll all have our own tastes, but the certain songs will, will pull on the heartstrings for that emotion or get us revved up for something. It's all part and parcel of what being an explorer is. Yeah, and I think that's why different songs, especially like different places, like different sports, they release those endorphins again and they trigger memories. And more often than not, they can either be a sad or a happy memory, but it is remembering something that's happened and music is fantastic for that. Now, I don't want to steal this. I, I must say, Ron, I've got this in me too, but I don't think I'm quite the competitor that you are, my friend. I am. I, I am personally borderline a joke when it comes to this. Um <laughs> It is as much as it is good, it is also bad because I find I wish I could transfer some of my competitive nature into sometimes things that are important and matter. A lot of my competitive nature is over pointless things like a, a quiz show on television, and I have to be the one who gets it right over my wife or son, or literally, as I said, playing a game with my son. I'll be competitive and I'll try and do, not say my best, but I'll try really hard because I want my son to learn that he's got to try hard to win. I don't, I'm a big fan of this not handing out eighth place trophies. I mean, yes, participation and get involved, but they need to learn to lose. And I don't think it's doing my son any any service whatsoever if I play with him and let him win at things on purpose. Because soon enough, he's five now, he can see that I'm not trying. He's daft. He knows I'm not really trying. And then it, where does the enjoyment from him come? I want him to keep trying and getting better because you know what? As much as it pains me to say it, one day soon there is going to be something I play with him and he's going to beat me. In fact, I'll be honest with you right now, he isn't far off beating me on his scale electrics. He's got a track in the, in the attic and you go around with these Lightning McQueen cars and I'll play to go around as fast as I can. And he's getting blooming good and he isn't far getting off better than me so i'm going to make the most of the next uh few weeks i've got as being the best at that but the competitor yeah i think i think you like you're saying mate sorry to cut you off but the if we aren't pushing our kids or our young ones to try and beat us and if we keep handing things out what happens when they leave school or they leave us and they go into the big world and they just expect things to happen like they get a job and they just expect to be doing all these fun things they expect to be winning they expect to get the promotion it doesn't work like yeah. no, no. It is it is amazing how that even still happens because you know they're going to leave and then expect to do something to the I don't know, not even the best of their ability and do an okay job. No one's going to come and be like, oh, brilliant, well done. Here's a sticker for having a fifty percent. Yeah, you you have to always try your best. And for me, I I still to this day, and this has enlightened me a bit. I can't comprehend how you could do something and not try to do your best or win. Like anything I'm doing, I have to do my best and try to, to win it. I, I don't see any other alternative. If I'm doing it, I'm doing it to the best that I can, which makes me a bit of a perfectionist. I can't comprehend how others aren't like that. And I've seen my wife, for example, she'll do things with me and she's just like, eh, whatever, you know, whether she wins or loses, it's a bit of a game. And sometimes I'm a bit jealous. I wish I was a bit more like that. But it really affects me if I don't try my best and don't yeah. push myself to win. I think it's a good quality and it also can be can be bad. And it's it's a fine one to balance. I've always been like that. Um, and it's the same when I'm teaching children. If I'm teaching them in a session or in a lesson and it's a bit of a competitive game that I've set up or something, I'll stand back and watch and you can see the ones who are sort of reflecting what I'm feeling. They're just going for it. 
but some don't seem to care all that much and they just go with emotions. My son is a bit like that. And I can't get my head around it. And I'd be fascinated to, maybe it's you, Dale, or anybody who's tuning in, for you to share share your own experience of maybe being a non-competitor or it's sort of in the background of your play personalities because I want to know what you're thinking. If you're in a situation which is competitive, what's your mindset if you're not that bothered and you're just like, eh, I'll just get on with it. It fascinates me. Yeah, well, I, th- I think, Ryan, that's why it's so good to be aware of the different play types because... Um, that way you understand why certain people are like that and why it means probably more to you in a team environment than it does to somebody else. They're probably looking for different experiences than what you are and winning or, you know, just getting that rah, that competitive aspect, that's not part of it. Just actually being part of the team, being socialising and enjoying the movement, that could be and, – and this is what we wanted to share all this for because everybody is different. So particularly if you've got kids or you're a, you're a parent or you're a teacher, if you can understand the play type of the students or your kids or whoever, you're going to understand how they tick better and obviously be able to provide better experiences for them because, as you said, I'm quite competitive too, but I don't always need to win. So that's something that Ryan and myself are a little bit different there, but on other things you're the same. So I feel if you can get a good grip of how everybody learns, everybody operates, um, you're going to be able to really cater the needs for everybody in your session or at home. Yeah, for sure. I just want to jump in there as well and say that's, before we go to the next one, you're, if you're working with older children, you know, key stage two and above, certainly high school, these are conversations you can have. This can be an activity with your class, can't it? You can sit yeah. and have a discussion, have them share with each other which play personalities do they think they are. And it can inform your planning later. You can have them maybe fill out a little slip where they write theirs on. I think younger children, it's better for you to make that judgment by watching yeah. them because you get the younger ones who will just see the names and be like, oh, I want to be the joker. Or I want to be a director. They don't quite understand the concept that they have to actually internalise and think about their personality but with the older children for sure it's something you should be doing yeah and and you'll find uh, the younger ones they're probably quite they haven't really developed fully I wouldn't have thought their play types either on that they're still similar in a lot of ways and I'm sure they've still got their characteristics you've always got the super competitive one you've always got the joker you've always got the one you know you've got the different ones but I feel in the primary setting that um, this is probably more beneficial for the teacher to know so they can go, right, this activity is not going to work because Dale can't handle it this way or we need to find a way to get around it. So um, I, I couldn't agree more that uh, not only talk in a high school setting but also in a business setting because um, it's so funny and I do a lot of corporate work now, Ryan, that when I do certain games in a corporate setting, it's life or death for certain people and they 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 can't have it any other way and if – I change the rules or I change something, they absolutely lose it. And so I find younger kids and adults, there's a huge gap. And, you know, that's interesting to see. It's it's huge. Just one last point as well before you move on to the next one. Now you've mentioned that, you know, who can empathise with this situation? So if you are teaching phys ed or doing a game, you've got a group of children, you've clearly got the ones who are competitive and want to win on each team. And maybe their team is dominating the other side and as a teacher or top practitioner you want to intervene and and maybe make it more competitive so you're going to go to the side who are struggling and maybe either give them an extra player or they can have longer on the ball or they can do something and the reaction of the competitive player on the team that's winning is what 
that, that's not fair because they get they lose it. They're like, hang on a minute, we're winning fair and square. They want to win the game, and you're giving them an advantage. That's me, but I understand where they're coming from. But as practitioners, we want to give everyone a fair shot to enjoy that competition as well. It's a very fine balance to to strike, and and, it, and again. There's children who don't really care whether they're winning or losing, but you still want them to gain a lot and learn a lot from that experience. But And I'm sure of you, some of you must have experienced that, not just me, where you try and level things up, but you'll always get that one kid who isn't having it. They're not happy that you are trying to level it up because that all of a sudden isn't fair. And they're playing to compete and win, and it's got to be a level playing field. Yeah, and that, that's a great point. And they can they can always see what you're doing, but they can't put get their head around it. They can't fathom it because they yeah. don't think it's fair. It's not it's not fair that you change it because they're winning and they're doing the right yeah. thing. It's uh, I find that really funny. All right, the director. I'll go through this one. So the director enjoys planning and executing uh, different scenes and events. All the world is a stage and the rest of us are players in the director's game. So these are probably your really organised people, you know, that um, everything is structured, they've got routines that they stick to and that they're very happy when they're in that. Would you say, Ryan, that a director, when you mix things up or you throw a spanner into works by changing things, that sometimes... Um, they, they struggle a little bit with that. It's probably a little like the competitor if you change the rules or you modify it or you help the other team out. I would say the directors, if you change the routine of a day or change a meeting or, or something like that, they really struggle with it because they've got it in their head, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially if they're in charge of a group, for example. I've seen this firsthand again. I keep linking it back to my teaching because I'm just getting, each time I've seen these, it reminds me of little stories. You know, sometimes the director might naturally come to the forefront. If you've got a group and you ask, you say, choose a leader or have one of you be the, the captain, sometimes they'll just they'll put themselves forward, right? I'm in charge. But we also equally want to promote group work where they're sharing ideas. And it's funny if the director lays things out within a group and then somebody else in the group who's equally confident wants to share an idea and says oh well I think we should do this and you can see that the director the cogs are ticking they're thinking hang on a minute that's not how I want to do it I'm not sure that I am not sure that I want to compromise with you so you see that what happens there especially if there's two directors in that group and they both want to do that but again it's all part of that learning experience how they learn to socialize and how they learn to compromise with each other it is fascinating that they you know they do want it their way this is my wife. She's left the house now, but I'm going to say it nice and loud. My wife is a director. She loves mapping stuff out. She yep. loves planning it. And if I come up with a different idea or solution, she challenges it. Says, right, well, why is she? She won't cave unless I can explain to her why my idea is better or more, more worthwhile. I have to explain everything because <laughs> she wants to have it mapped out. It's the game. She's overseeing it from above. She's, she's the puppet master. It's great. <laughs> I, I do like that and I can guarantee everybody listening along watching along whatever you're doing you'll know straight away one person that just comes straight to your mind with that and that they have to have it all their own way and that's the way it needs to be and and it's, it's crucial that it just stays that way yeah for sure <laughs> the collector Ryan the collector this is again believe it or not lots of you watching thinking what I've said so far, this is definitely partly me as well. This is sort of my intrinsic, quiet side from growing up. You know, the thrill of collecting things and having the most and the best. Something that was huge for me when I was sort of at the back end of primary school was the Pokemon cards. Right. Back into uh, 1999, 98. Um, but just having the best. 
the best shiny, the most of a certain kind. That, you know, fueled my fire almost as a as an ego thing to gloat to others because I just wanted to have the most and the best. And the collectors often do that. You, you see, again, I want to keep bringing it back to PE and teaching. Um, if you're handing out a set of pencils in a classroom, they're all yellow pencils that are HB, but in the box there's one red pencil. You bet there'll be certain children in that class, there might be a lot of them, who want the red pencil because it's the one that's a bit different. They want to have the one which is slightly, you know, it's more interesting. It stands out a little bit, and that's almost a bit of an ego thing. I'm teaching tennis. All the tennis rackets are green. Oh, but believe it or not, there's a blue tennis racket. A A lot of the children, they want the blue one because it's different, it's interesting. And the collector, like it says here, they want to have the most of something, the best of something, the most interesting of something. But they also like having things just so. They like bringing order to a bit of chaos. And I said to Dale before this went live, and I don't mind, I'm unashamedly going to say it again now, even though we are live on a webinar. I used to tidy my cupboard under my bed when I was a kid, when it was messy, sometimes off my own back. Now, what a weird, strange young boy you may think I must have been. But I enjoyed having things just where I wanted them to be, so I knew where they were, I knew where I could get them from. A lot of that has definitely come from my upbringing, putting a lot of it down to my own mum. But it is, it's just its just something that I do now to this day. I can still see glimpses of that in the way I am day to day and how things have to be a certain way. And if not, I get a little bit fidgety and a bit unsure. And, oh, I'm not, not, not happy with that. I'm sure you can think of children or even traits in yourself or others who this definitely relates to. And it's just a natural thrill, isn't it, for lots of us? We take it into adulthood. People collect antiques or coins. But children do the same. For, for a while there over here, I don't know if it was the same in Australia, they had something called loom bands. Do you have loom bands? It's about three years ago. Yeah. We, there were loom bands, then there were fidget spinners, but uh, you can have the most interesting fidget spinner or the yeah. coolest. Kids will naturally draw around bean, bean collectors, even if it's just temporarily for that one month that it's a fad, yeah. and then they might lose it again. But it's something which just sort of promotes their ego, promotes their social standing maybe because it integrates them into part of a group. It's a fascinating trait which can definitely be integrated into your learning as well. And maybe at the end, they'll talk about how we can integrate some of these into games or something. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's fascinating as well. I was in the Pokemon cards, but I was um, basketball cards, so NBA cards. And I think the fascinating thing is that you were saying you want to have the best one and I wanted to get the full set because I wanted to be able to take them in my plastic thing. And I think the older we get the more expensive our things get to put up our ego. And I, I think this is particularly a, a male thing, and I can only speak from experience, but um, I look at my father and um, he loves getting buying old cars and motorbikes. Now, he's got a lot of them. Surely he doesn't need that many, but what I find is that he likes using those as conversation starters. And it, it is really, and I say this to him, that is being... That is really all for your ego. So I think it comes back to the thrill of collecting. Um, and, yes, you take pride in it and so forth like that, like you did with your Pokemon cards. Like I've, I've still got my basketball cards, and I probably guarantee you've still got your Pokemon ones. Yeah, I have. But I, I think the older we get, and people can be listening to this, that the more expensive the thrill becomes and um, the more expensive it, it, that ego-filling sort of satisfaction comes. Yeah. But, um, well, you, do, you do. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Is the... the um the host of American chat shows, Jay Leno, he collects cars, doesn't he? He's a car collector. Obviously, he's a very wealthy man from his TV presenting days, but he, he collects classic cars. He's got, like, 
in the tens, twenties, thirties, forties of cars that I collect. But it's an expensive thing, and <coughs> excuse me, sometimes it is for for ego. I think that's probably the worst thing it can be for, and you know, it has been ego for me. And I'm trying to eradicate that because at the end of the day, I should just be trying to make myself happy. If I'm happy, all is good. Just to yeah. please myself, I shouldn't be using these material things to please or to to impress anybody else. My right. happiness rests in my own head to make me happy. And if it's just for the thrill of it, that's what it should be for. And I think for a lot of people, that's what it is. And my um, mother and father-in-law, they love traveling. So they're explorers like you. They love going places and they love taking pictures there. And they've been so many places around the world. That is their collector side coming through. They want to be able to say, I've been here. I've done that. I've seen that place. Yep. But even though they're older now, and I've seen this from stepping back, I wouldn't always say this to their face, but part of it is an ego trip too because yep. I've seen how yep. they interact with others. And when they're talking with others, they love almost bragging about that. Yes. Oh, we've yep. been there. We've done that. Oh, we've got, yeah, we saw, oh, that wasn't very good. And they, they, they love using that as almost a social tool to throw at others to make themselves look better that they've been there. So, yes, they are collectors and they enjoy going places. They love the thrill of seeing new places. I don't doubt that. Yep. But they also use that as a bit of an ego trip to say, look at me. Yeah. We've been there. We've done that. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't want to go there because we've already done it sort of thing. Yeah. So it's fascinating. It is, it is, mate. And I must admit, I catch myself doing that as well with travel stuff. And you just sound like a real twat. Mate, and uh, I always sit back and go, oh, shut up. You don't need to say that. Like, you were making a conversation awkward because you're obviously trying to, like, say how good you are or that you've done this and so forth like that. And I don't always think people mean to actually do it, Ryan, but it does come across oh, yeah. that way, you know. And, and yes, I, I actually agree with everything you said about there that um, – it's great to have items and collect things and um, don't get me wrong, you need them, but deep down, if, they're not, if you're relying on them, those items or those collectors or those memories to make you happy, then you're going to be always on the thrill uh, of the chase you know, because you can't, like Jay Leno, if the cars are making you happy, he obviously he has to keep buying them because you get that short release, that hit, but then you need another one. You need another yeah. one. So, um, well, it's amazing. It's fascinating. It's almost like the and then what syndrome. Like, people think money is going to make them happy. So yeah. you want X amount of money because you want this big TV. Okay, so you get your big TV and your big house, then what? You know, you're not going to be settled. You're going to want something bigger and a better house yeah. and a better TV. So then you get that. Then what? That ultimately isn't going to give you what is going to my class as happiness. Yes, some people might say money can buy you some things that might make you happier. But there's always going to be, and then what? And then what? Okay, so you get that. Then what next? So yeah. ultimately, you need to find something that you're passionate about and will continue to do regardless of what that outcome is because you enjoy the process and enjoy doing something as opposed to the ultimate goal. And I think that's what a lot of collectors enjoy doing. They just enjoy the journey of finding that rare stamp and then looking for the next rare stamp. There, there isn't a, an ultimate end goal. They just enjoy doing it forever and ever and ever. Yeah, I, mate, I totally agree with you there. And um, I think the thrill, a lot of people deep down, they've, everybody's got something in that one as well that they have to collect. Um, now, the artist, the creator. Uh, so this is for the people that find joy in making things. So painting, pottery, woodwork. Um, I used to, I went to, I don't know if they're called Steiner schools over in uh, the UK, Ryan, are they? Have you heard of Anyway, so. I don't know. I went to a primary school that uh, there was about 30 kids. It was on a farm um, and, like, there was no 
no uniform. Uh, we'd go swimming in the dam and channels and climb trees. And uh, it was really sort of alternative. And every afternoon we'd do arts and crafts. So I really liked this. I, I used to really like knitting. I like knitting and crochet. So there's a couple of things people may not know about me, but um, I really enjoyed making those. And um, a lot of these people, um, they may sell their work, they may show people, but it's something they're created, all right? And the point is simply make something beautiful, functional, or even goofy, all right? And deep down that gives you a lot of joy. And um, I used to know doing pottery or, or knitting a scarf or something like that that um, – I'd created that and I know that a lot of people get a lot of satisfaction and I'm going to use my sister as an example now that she gets her mindfulness is sitting in front of the TV knitting, all right, because she doesn't need to look at her knitting, she can do it um, and for some reason that's what works for her. So I know we talk about a lot as well, Ryan, when we talk but mindfulness just isn't meditation. You know, playing is mindfulness and for her, knitting. So um, I find that really interesting and, and the artistic, the creator, a lot of people love drawing or sort of jigsaw puzzles or things mm. like that, you know, that they're figuring something out and they're creating it. And um, people might think that puzzles are goofy or they might think that drawing's goofy or that it's something for kids. Well, if it makes you happy, then I would highly recommend continue doing it. Yeah, I'm going to throw a curveball here, almost a spanner in the works, because an artist creator is partly me too. I wish I had time to go and run upstairs. I have a folder of drawings that I, I love pencil drawing, cool. HB pencil drawing, and I, I just love the process of doing it. But I love the process of trying to make something that's perfect. So for me, I've already mentioned I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and it has to be just so. And if it wasn't, if I was drawing a picture of somebody or something, if it didn't look exactly like it, that paper was getting screwed up and thrown away and starting again. It had to be just so, and it's almost a toxic combination of being a competitor and an artist creator because I love being the creator. I love drawing, but because I'm so competitive, it has to look perfect. And if it didn't look right, and I knew deep down it didn't look like the thing I was drawing, even if somebody like my own mother came and said, oh, that's a beauty, that's amazing, I would counter and say, no, it's not. No, it's not. It doesn't look... And I, and I would be so defensive over it and counter and say, well, it isn't perfect. It isn't right. And my competitive nature would take over so much that there's probably so many things that have been thrown by the wayside. But that being said, I still love to sit down and take a few hours drawing something. I, for me, it's mindfulness. It's just that yeah. colouring, the shading, the blends, the tones. It really gets me in the zone and, and I love the thrill of it. But there's been times when I've spent two hours on something and at the end of it, it's ended up in the bin. <laughs> yeah. and do, do, uh, do you, again, probably like you were mentioning a little bit with your competitive side of things, do you wish that you weren't as hard on yourself? Because I know looking yeah. at, at the resources you create and obviously those ones that have made the bundle and stuff together, um, I'm more of a I'll just get it done and on to the next thing, whereas yours yeah. are like – uh, they're so much nicer than mine because I can tell how much effort and perfectionist you put into it. Oh yeah, for sure. I wish I wish so badly that I wasn't as caught up on that. You know, perfectionist to the extreme. My wife drills it into me often with lots of things and says, "Don't be such a perfectionist. Just just get it out there, get it yeah. done." And I've and I started to do that more recently. If I hadn't done that, I would have never released the podcast. You know, so so painstaking about everything. And that was the one, the first barrier I broke through. It was three years ago. So it took me till I was 28 years old, 27, to actually break through that barrier of, you know what, just being good is good enough. Whereas in the past it was 
perfect. It has to be perfect. And that's the first time I broke through and it started to filter to different areas of my life now where I've began to accept that actually just getting it done and getting it out there, it can always be changed afterwards or made yeah. better. It doesn't have to be perfect. But for me, that is a, that is a huge one. And it's a, mm. an area that I've never really shared and spoke to people about before, but it's a, it's a real mental battle going on in my head. Yeah, I, I, well, I could. I didn't even need you to tell me that. I could just tell by your mannerisms and the way that you do your work, and it, it's it's also a, a massive positive as well because I will often I get a lot of stuff done wrong, but people will always pick me up. You've done this wrong. There's spelling mistakes. Is that? And I'm like, oh well, that's fine. I'll mix up in the next one. Whereas um, I'm probably the opposite to you. I'm an extremist, and there's there's always got to be a middle ground. So. Um, for me, that's buying different software to work on my spelling or to get things to double-check or paying for proofreaders. And for you, that's actually just taking a step releasing stuff and going, I may not think it's perfect, but it's good enough. And other people, like your podcast and your Lisa, mate, it's perfect to me. You know, I'm like, wow, that is so polished the way you've done it. So that's what I mean. It's, um, they're, everybody's different and it's so amazing really when you talk about it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I have a tendency to just focus on, and I need to get better at this, and this is why mindfulness is so important. We're sort of going off tangent, but I have a tendency to, to just fo- you know, focus or pick out the negatives in a situation. I might have made the best resource ever. Uh, somebody will say, oh, that's brilliant, that's amazing, that's, that's great, that's great, that's great. But instead of me acknowledging saying, oh, thanks, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed creating that, yes, that will be great, I will say, oh, but what about that thing? The one thing which yeah. is perhaps... I think I could do better. That's what I'll focus on. And no one even else saw it or cares. But because I was in it and I was part of that process, that's the one thing I cling on to and I need to try and eradicate that. Yeah, and but again, and the being aware of it and speaking about it, that's I think that's the biggest battle. And you like it's not a bad thing to have, mate. Like and mine's the same and I, I'll constantly work at it, but um I don't let it slow me down. And I suppose if there are people and I can guarantee them that we've gone off on a little bit of a different topic here, that people will be able to relate to either one of us, you know. And so I know so many people I talk to that have got this idea or they've created a book or they've created something, but it's not perfect, so they don't want to relate. It. And the biggest bit of advice I can get is the only way you'll know it's not perfect or that it's good or it's not good is by actually showing it to the world, releasing it. Like, for example, Ryan, when we first started chatting, you had all these amazing ideas and resources, but you hadn't released them really, had you? You'd only just sort of start. Whereas now you're on a roll. You've got so many good things going on and people are loving it because you've allowed them to love it instead of blocking them in. And you're getting feedback and you know what they like more. So um, if you're listening to this, I know we're talking about play and so forth like this, but the only way you're going to learn is by actually doing something. And it's a, it's a vulnerability. Vulnerability is a big word. You've got to be vulnerable to learn and to move on. And um, I've just seen, particularly since we've started working this year, the amount of quality work and the growth you've had, Ryan, because you have been, mate, you've been vulnerable. You put yourself out there and now you've got these amazing resources to show for it. Yeah, and I think just before we get onto the last last play, Tide, ultimately that's boiled down to the fact I've started to more so value my own opinion over others internally. You know, at the end of the day, if it's making me happy and it's something that I've enjoyed creating and I think it's a value, it doesn't matter what somebody else says. They can have their opinion, that's great, but at the end of the day, if it's my opinion, my internal dialogue, if that's positive, that's good enough for me. Yeah, mate, and very well said. And deep down, I know a lot of people will struggle with that and it may take time, but um, once you – it's getting that first step. It's like 
it's like jumping into a cold pool. If you go in slowly, it's hard. Whereas if you just jump straight in, it's, oh, but then you get used to it. So um, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And um, the final one, Ryan, storyteller. <coughs> Absolutely. Storyteller, imagination is key. And you'll, you personally, you'll know again, lots of children or people in your life who are the center of attention and they just love being that storyteller bringing scenarios to life. My dad is a master at this. Yeah. He can take the most mundane situation or tale and turn it in. He'll have everybody on the edge of their seats, <laughs> laughing, keeled over, what's next? Because he can just generate such uh, an experience through words and through his imagination. It is unreal. You know, you can probably relate to some of these, Dale, as can the people watching this, reading books, watching movies, making themselves part of that tale. And I'll be honest with you, it isn't my you know, one of my strongest play personalities. It's sort of in the middle sort towards the back because I do like reading a book. Watching movies, I can't do just because the kinesthetic side of me takes over. I have to be moving and doing something. I can't sit still yeah. for all that long. That being said, I do enjoy, hence the podcast, telling stories. I do like sharing ideas and explaining scenarios. Some say I like the sound of my voice too much. That isn't true. I hate the sound of my voice. But I do like to chat about things and talk about it. And it is that entire imagination. Look on the playground at your children who are playing at playtime. You see groups of children. Which one child is in, in charge, the director of their group, that is saying, oh, you know, I'm the policeman and I'm going to arrest you and we're going to go to the jail. There's just a fence which has got a broken panel on it. But all of a sudden that becomes the jail they've got to escape from. There's a spot on the floor, but that becomes their getaway vehicle that they're going to jump into. Which child is using their environment to create amazing stories that they can immerse themselves into? Again, children are amazing at this, some better than others, but that, again, has a lot to do with their upbringing and how much, in my opinion, they've been exposed to things like books from an early age and stories from adults around them, because that can really impact how they can use their own imagination to create as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, storytelling, it's its such a powerful tool and I've got better at it over the last couple of years because um, I think if I've got a story of whatever I'm trying to bring across, then people will listen to it. If you're reading stats and facts and anything like that, I'll probably zone out, whereas if somebody's telling me a story, I'm intrigued, you know, and if they do it well, probably like your grandpa, you know, or your, if your father, if they're doing it well, then it could be a story about anything. You just want to know what happened. So um, yeah. the power of storytelling, and I, I think nearly the best people in the world at it are teachers because – um, they need to find ways to sell teaching subjects that kids don't want to do. You know, the kids aren't enjoying and storytelling is such a powerful way of doing it. And, yeah. um, I personally just love it. Yeah, ultimately the power of story lies in the fact it taps into emotions and that is one of the most powerful learning tools, if you like. If you can tap into the emotional side of anybody adults, children, through story as a way in because they can relate and they can feel what you're telling them, then that is hugely powerful. Take this back to when I'm using story as the, the foundation for a lesson that I'm teaching, going on a journey under the seat. You know, there'll be little mini sub-stories within that session, but hopefully the children will feel the happiness or if I'm doing the underwater adventure, part of that story is they've got to find Nemo because he's gone missing. Where's Nemo gone? Oh, my goodness. Are the children going to feel sad? Are they going to be a bit upset? But they're going to go find Nemo. And then when they do find him, it's like the best thing ever. And that emotional side to that session is powerful, powerful learning. They're doing it without even realising. And it's just amazing. 
Yeah, I, mate, I totally agree. And um, I think people are storytellers if they like it or not. Some are just better than others. And mm. um, I've found that um, if you are in a, a position that you're trying to persuade people, um, storytelling is the best way to do it. And uh, you can get better at it. Um, there's a lot of courses you can do and so forth. But um, that's one of, I think, the biggest areas that I've improved my presenting on. And uh, storytelling is the big area for that, Ryan. So um, yeah. that brings us to the end of it today now. And all those amazing resources uh, from the great man who is sitting across the other side of the world from me connected to this webinar, Ryan, you have created all of those into post-its. So you can go and print those yeah. out. Um, I've got the link up there. So it's just peumbrella.com forward slash posters. Um, and if you go in there, uh, you can print them all out, particularly for teachers. I find these are really cool. Stick them around. Even um, I've been using similar things in adult workshops as well because um, it's really funny when you partner people up and you ask them to play a couple of games and then you've got to tell your partner what they are. And um, I find it's a really good skill that um, adults, because deep down under pressure, play is something that really, really comes to the forefront. Can people handle it under pressure and um, if you know a little bit about that person and what makes them tick and what excites them um, and that's what play does then they're obviously going to uh, give you a lot of clues and hints of how they can dominate whatever you're doing yeah sure and like Dale said you know you grab them for free peeumbrella.com all of the posters are there use them just as even if they're up in a classroom as well or in a, in a hall as a point of reference to refer to occasionally sometimes you might put them up and not even mention it but you, you might find some of your older students just naturally because they are colorful they do pop having a little read and oh what's this and being intrigued about it i love what you just said then dale about actually playing with somebody and have them infer what play personality they think the other person is yeah i think that's fascinating and i think a lot of people will get it spot on because yep. you can infer a lot just from a few minutes of play and it's great for developing those empathetic skills because then you can understand where somebody else is coming from. If they do get a bit cross about something or a bit upset or a bit annoyed and you can see they're a bit off, if you understand their play personality and the context of how that's happened, you know, it helps you understand that and then how to best deal with it rather than having a go at somebody. And it's great for the students to, to develop those skills as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm just sitting here going, uh, I'm going to extract the audio from this, Ryan, and uh, create a podcast, mate, because uh, I think uh, what we've spoken about today uh, will hit home with so many different people. And um, those posters, trust me, go and print them out. Again, uh, Ryan's got a number of free things on there that you can go and use. But particularly for what I'm interested in and what I do, these work great for me. And deep down, we're all players, uh, Depends how you go about it. But uh, if you can know a little bit more about the people around you, your team environment, people you work with, your kids at home, students, whatever, it is obviously going to be beneficial in the long run. So, um, Brian, thanks so much for your time today. And not only that, creating the posters, mate. Um, I know a lot of work goes into these resources and it just shows the generosity of you, mate, for giving them away for free. So thank you for that. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much, Dale. No worries. Good night, everyone. Good morning, everyone, wherever you are. Have a good one. <laughs>